I've divided our discussion in two parts. First part, get the gospel. Second part, get on mission. I think that's our goal at this conference is to make sure uh, you believe the gospel and make sure we're not exporting a deficient gospel or a false gospel. So let's start first with the gospel since it is of first importance. So, uh, CJ, um, we'll start with you. So you're, you are uh, preaching tonight, you're preaching tomorrow, then you're going to get on a plane and go to Louisville where you pastor a church. If someone on the plane says, what have you been doing? And you say, I've been at a conference called Gospel and Mission. And they say, well, what is the gospel? How do you respond to that? What is, how do you define or explain the gospel to a person on the street? And I hope, I hope they do. That would be my privilege. Uh, I would say the gospel is good news. What good news? The good news of God's saving acts in the person and work of Christ. I would try to explain to them that the essence or the heart of the gospel is, is substitution. Uh, I would reference 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4. Christ died for our sins. Died for sinners like you and me. In our place condemned he stood. He was punished so that we might be pardoned. He bore our sin and suffered the righteous wrath of God against our sin so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven of our sin, reconciled to God, justified before God, adopted by God. Uh, and then, then I would say something like, and you and I can add nothing to this work. It is a finished work. It is a sufficient work. It falls to us simply to turn from our sins to trust in the Savior for the forgiveness of sins and to receive this gift. I, I would say something like that. So substitution is at the heart of your gospel and the benefit derived from that would be the indwelling spirit, adoption, community. But we want to make sure we're emphasizing substitution as we present the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, guys, anything you want to... Would you add to that? Okay. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Aiken, I'd love for you to comment uh, on this idea and the subsequent question. Uh, John Stott says, All around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. So how are churches fumbling the gospel? Um, what, what do we need to do theologically to make sure we're saying the right things? And, and practically, as a church, how, how do we make sure we're not fumbling the gospel or minimizing the gospel? Well, there are several ways, I think, that you uh, ensure that you hold on tight uh, to the gospel uh, and keep it as a sacred treasure. One is expository preaching, where you are just uh, soaking in the scriptures weak after week, after week, after week. Uh, I'm going to do hermeneutics for a moment. I think it involves uh, asking the right questions of a text week after week after week. Uh, when we teach here, uh, we teach our students to ask uh, five fundamental questions of the Bible and to ask them in a particular order. Uh, what does this text teach me about God? We start with our Creator. We start with our Sovereign Lord. Uh, secondly, what does this text teach about fallen humanity uh, that demands the grace of God? Uh, Brian Chappell, in his very fine book, Christ-Centered Preaching, talks about a fallen condition focus where you look at humanity both in terms of our dignity. We are image bearers of God, but we're fallen. And what in this text requires, demands uh, the grace of God? Uh, just asking those two questions in that order will keep us from doing uh, how-to preaching, uh, five uh, principles to do this or seven to do that, and, and not against principles, but that's the wrong place to start. That, that's where you may eventually end up. Third question is, how does this text point to Christ? Uh, we believe that all the Bible is Christian scripture. Uh, we do not read the Bible like a Jewish rabbi. We read Genesis through Malachi like a Christian. And we need to be reminded that in the first century, the only Bible they had, at least for the first several decades, was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was their Bible. And they had no difficulty seeing Christ 
in their Bible. Jesus says in, in John chapter 5 that all of Scripture testifies of me. He, on the road to Emmaus, the, the two disciples, he took them through the law, the prophets, and the writings and showed them how the Christ uh, must suffer. Then we can ask the, the question, what does God want my people to know? And then, fifthly, what does God want my people to do? So I think that's one way of making sure we stay tethered to the gospel. Secondly, we have to work hard not to confuse the, the gospel, especially in the South, with our cultural trappings. And, and in many cases, we think conservatism is equal to the gospel and it certainly is not. Now, now let me be clear. I, I'm conservative on, on all the moral issues. I, I am pro-life. I am pro-marriage. Furthermore, I believe we should take care of the environment, take care of the poor. Uh, I'm a big fan of adoption. It's a much better way to go than abortion. Uh, it's the right way to go as opposed to abortion. So on all of those type of issues, I think the scriptures are clear where we stand on that. But we can be right on all the moral issues and miss the gospel. And so I think we have to again and again go back to what C.J. said, and that is go back to Christ and this doctrine of substitution, which you guys need to understand if you've grown up in church, especially in evangelical church, we just assume that. But in the greater theological world, uh, it is a pariah. Uh, it is a scandal. You have people today that speak in terms of divine child abuse. And that I would not worship a God that would so abuse and brutalize his compliant son. So they take a shot both at the father uh, and they take a shot at the son, failing to realize that Second Corinthians 5 puts it all in proper perspective. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There was a perfect uh, oneness of mind within the triune God to bring about the redemption of sinful humanity. And so if we continue to drive ourselves back to Christ and look to Christ and see that Christ is in all of Scripture, that will help keep us focused where we need to uh, on the gospel. Excellent. You guys want to add to that? If you're talking to church leaders, I want you to make sure you say this, the gospel, and do this. Maybe practically, anyway, you would also talk about how to circulate the gospel throughout the church. Let me just say this now, stop. One of the great things about expository preaching is it allows you to get to the gospel through a number of different roads. In other words, in a sense, as Spurgeon said, all roads in the Bible lead to Christ. But there are different avenues. And so if you're working your way through a particular book of the Bible, maybe you're going through Ephesians. Well, when you finally get to chapter 5, now you have the chance to show the gospel in, in marriage. And then in chapter 6, the gospel in child rearing. And in the latter part of chapter 6, the gospel in relationships of, of business. And, of course, in that context, it was slave and slave owners, but in superiors and those who work under them. And then the, the, the gospel working itself out in the armor of God. And the gospel is in all of that. And it gives you a different, so it's, it's fresh, it's new, and it's comprehensive. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact it is a comprehensive gospel. And you would say not just for preaching, because not everyone here is preachers, but reading the Bible that way and understanding the Bible that way is also good just for any Christian, for reading, for small group teachers, or whatever. If you don't read it that way, I think you're, if not misreading the Bible, under-reading the Bible. Yeah, um, talking about uh, losing the gospel, you know, the gospel is, is another way of stating what C.J. said, is that Jesus the King is Jesus the Savior. And I, th I think we can minimize the gospel by minimizing either his saviorship or his kingship. So uh, minimizing his saviorship would be, uh, you know, we find folks who are embarrassed that the scriptures teach that we are guilty, all guilty before God and under his wrath, mm -hmm. and that it took a bloody cross to save us. Yeah. That's an embarrassing fact, and you see throughout church history people who become embarrassed by that, that fact and basically fall off the left-hand uh, side of the ship um, or become embarrassed by biblical, clear biblical teaching on hell. Um, but I think we can also minimize his kingship. You know, Jesus not only saved us from something, he saved us for something. And evangelicals sometimes talk about what he saved us from, but not too much what he saved us for, which is to bring all of life under submission to the Lordship of Christ. So, yeah. if, I, if I was speaking to a pastor, uh, I would say to the pastor that when you are preaching, you are not simply preaching a sermon. You are teaching those you serve and love how to read the Bible. Uh, 
in his uh, work on the Puritans, uh, J.I. Packer, said that the preacher's commission is to declare the whole counsel of God. The cross is the center of that counsel. And the traveler through the landscape of the Bible misses his way as soon as he loses sight of Calvary. So, every sermon should have some sighting of Calvary appropriate to the text. And those who are in your church should come each Sunday filled with anticipation that at some point in the sermon, appropriately drawn from the text, there will be that sighting. And in some ways, the more obscure the text, the more they should be filled with anticipation about that sighting. So that's what I would say to a pastor Excellent. in relation to that. Do you want to add to that, Bruce? You know the the risk of the church losing the gospel, um, definitely, most certainly, preaching the gospel from the pulpit. Uh, but uh, you know, in many of our churches, uh, most of the people think that the gospel is for unbelievers, and we've kind of seen that last night in terms of the gospel for believers. We know it's for us as well, and so what that means is that in terms of leadership, we've got to push the gospel yeah. down into the congregation. That's right for gospel-centered community. Yes. And that's the way that I feel like we that's one of our big weaknesses where we're losing the gospel, maybe not always from the leadership, but down in the community because people come in and they hear gospel-centered preaching on Sunday, but then they walk out and what do they do with it? Are they living yes. in gospel-centered community throughout the week? And so I think that if we're going to you know, if we're going to have our churches center themselves on the gospel, it's going to have to be pushed down into uh, into the the actual church body. Mm. C.J. Uh, Luther said the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough. Um, we not only want to preach it from the pulpit, as we've been saying here, but we also hear a lot of preach the gospel to yourself every day. Yeah. What is that, and how do you do that? Excellent question. Yeah, I, th- I think it's in his commentary on Galatians. He says to in fa- to pastors, we must beat it into their heads. Uh, I need it beaten into my head every day, which is why I need to preach the gospel to myself each and every day, because my tendency each and every day is to forget the gospel. That's my tendency. Um, and I'm also vulnerable to either legalism or license each and every day. Indwelling sin remains, and it's active in my life. Uh, Therefore, I must fight it by preaching the gospel to myself. So uh, it is it is a simple practice that has a profound effect on my life. Uh, It is intentional in my life. Uh, It is informed by my reading of scripture. It is informed by my singing gospel centered songs. It is informed by uh, reading uh, supplemental books that uh, draw my attention to that hill called Calvary. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. So I try to set aside time each day to dwell there where I can hear those cries and be appropriately affected by them. And that leads to my next question, CJ. How do you stay so happy? I think I know the answer, but you radiate a joy I think we would all say uh, we just admire. So where does that come from? Is that just your personality? The Redskins fan in oh, you, okay. what is it that <laughs> it, it could possibly so be derived from that? Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you discern joy in my life. Uh, I have been forgiven of many sins. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I believe joy is, is and should be a priority in our lives. Uh, scripture exhorts us serve the Lord with gladness. So it would be my understanding that it isn't sufficient for me simply to be faithful. It's important to be faithful, just not sufficient. It's important for me to be diligent, but it's not sufficient. I'm really not, I'm really not fully pleasing and glorifying God. I'm really not accurately representing Him if I'm, not, if I'm not serving Him with gladness. There should be this distinctive of gladness in our lives derived from our awareness that our most serious problem has been resolved by the cross of Christ. I am no longer an object of the wrath of God. Better news does not exist. How can one contemplate that for even a moment and not be exceedingly happy? So I seek to, uh, 
I seek to contemplate that, and in and, and going through my day, um, I, I seek to... Uh, here, here, would, here would be a way I preach the gospel to myself that also I find effective in provoking evangelism. When I'm asked how I am doing, which I am asked, as you are asked, uh, repeatedly and throughout the day, my normal answer is, better than I deserve. Uh, now, I'm doing two things there. One, I'm preaching the gospel to myself because that is indeed true. That is always true. I'm doing better than I deserve. Uh, when your point of reference is hell, you are doing better than you deserve when you have been forgiven of all your sins. And our point of reference should be <laughs> hell in that regard. Um, I am never doing worse than I deserve. So it is a means of preaching the gospel to myself. And I also find it very, it provokes people. I actually, over the years, I've... I've never said that in response to someone where I haven't had a reaction from someone. It captures people's attention. And I could entertain you with numerous stories as well where people have even started to argue with me, concerned I have low self-esteem and wanting to convince me that I do deserve whatever is taking place in my life. And what a joy it is then to inform them of the doctrine of sin and what a sinner I am. I was at Starbucks one time and I shared that. There's two lines. So there's a line to my right and I'm in line and the guy takes my order and says, hey man, how you doing? I said, I'm doing better than I deserve. And, and he starts to engage me on this, which gave me an opportunity really to share the gospel and to, to accent the doctrine of sin and to accent that, that I was indeed a sinner. I was halfway into this when I realized I, I had this, I had this uh, audience that was paying attention to me. I remember I turned and looked to the woman at the left. Not sure what she was thinking, but it appeared to be uh, something like, I'd recommend decaf. Um, so... <laughs> So, so I'm doing better than I deserve. Um, therefore, I should be glad. Tony, can I add something to go back to your first question, which CJ alluded to walking through that? How do we stay um, tethered to the gospel? How do we make sure we don't let it go? And this won't be popular, but I think it's necessary. We desperately in our day need a recovery uh, and a defense of the biblical teaching of the doctrine of hell. We, we just do. And they say, well, I don't want to talk about that. Well, that's too bad. We must talk about it. Uh, we need to talk about it. Uh, and even though I recognize that the world will scoff at us for it, uh, out of love and compassion for them, we are derelict in our responsibility if we don't. And I don't care how many Rob Bells come along and write heretical books entitled Love Wins. Uh, the Bible is crystal clear on the destiny of those who die apart from Christ. And again, it is often said, and it's true, Jesus spoke of hell more than anybody else in all of the Bible. The, the, the powerful Greek uh, concept Gehenna is on his lips every single time with only one exception, and that's when his brother uses the word in his epistle, the epistle of James, to talk about what the tongue sometimes has as its source of origin for all the damage it can do. So if our Savior spoke as much as he did and as clearly as he did about this doctrine, and then you have what Paul teaches, what you have in the Revelation, I think part of the way that we retain integrity when it comes to the gospel is to be reminded of what we have been rescued from, and therefore it drives us again and again to Christ and the cross and the fact that we could have never done anything to eradicate ourselves from such a destiny other than his sheer mercy and grace. And if we do that, then... But again, how, how often do you hear, hear people preach on or talk about uh, hell? And, and it is true. It, you just don't. And especially among the more liberally-minded denominations, uh, they, no, they are embarrassed by penal substitution. They're embarrassed that a doctrine like that is even being talked anymore. What, have we not progressed beyond the stage where we... Uh, uh, strike fear in the hearts of men and women and, and, God forbid, boys and girls? Well, you can either be captivated to the culture or you can be captivated to the Scriptures. And, and if I could just add, completely agree, Dr. Aiken, and thanks for that reminder, and let all of us in pastoral ministry, and all of us, when we are reminding anyone of hell, um, let's remind them, having been humbled by the Gospel, that they're 
uh, not be even the trace of self-righteousness in the tone of our voice as we are uh, appropriately referencing hell. Um, Those who are aware of wrath and hell, they are those who are amazed by grace. They are those who have been humbled by the gospel. So let that characterize our tone as we are communicating this critical content. That is so helpful. Um, let's, let's make a, a pivot to mission for just a moment. Uh, the phrase often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Uh, what's wrong with that statement? Anybody? This is for the panel. Everything. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, what if it turns out he didn't say that? I mean, what, well, that would be what, problem yes, one. I, I, <laughs> he didn't say it. My heart goes out to him in that regard, but uh-huh. somebody said it. Do we have to use words, Bruce? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if I were going to use, uh, um, try to make an analogy here, maybe it would be the, the analogy of a wheel for just a moment, uh, where you've got a hub, you've got spokes, and the, the outer part of a wheel. I think <clears throat> at the dead center of what we do as believers is verbal proclamation of the gospel. It's like the hub of the wheel. If you don't have the hub, the whole wheel collapses. Um, On the other hand, I would say that I think that God intends for word and deed to come together, that our life be a a seamless tapestry of word and deed, that we proclaim him with our lips and promote him with our lives so that the way we live backs up the words that we preach. And uh, so I don't want it to be an either-or choice, but that is an awful quote. We're not saved by other people's life. We're saved by his life. But you can't know about his life unless you proclaim verbally the gospel. And so he was just having a bad day. But, but I mean, anybody that has the last name Sissy, you know, you can't really feel very good about them. And so that was wow. part of his problem. He, he had an identity crisis and he was really struggling. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I get lost up here in the conversation. I forget I'm in front of all you people. I'm so engaged here. Um, let me. I was going to say something profound, and I forgot what it was. Oh, oh! I, I, I asked my preaching class the other day. You know, what is what is God's what is the predominant means in the New Testament? What what is God's predominant means for making the message of the gospel known in the New Testament? The predominant means, not the exclusive means, but the predominant. And I wanted them to say preaching, and I tried to proceed to show them all the, the times preaching is talked about in the New Testament. And then I asked them, why do you think this means is so, why, why is it? And I think it's because it is consistent with our message. The gospel is news, and you have to tell news. Um, no one gets on Fox or CNN tonight and says, hey, you know, I, I'm going to bring you the news, and if necessary, I'll use words. Uh, no, you haven't had to tell us what the news is. And so uh, while I definitely agree with Bruce and while I am a big proponent, of course, of orphan care and mercy ministry and fighting human trafficking, uh, we don't want at any point to minimize the necessity of, of, of words. And uh, even when we're doing orphan care, I would argue we're not caring for orphans if we don't tell them the news. Because our, our great aim is not to save orphans personally. I'm not the savior of them, but rather the savior is the savior of them. And that's what we want to communicate to them. Some 140 million of them around the world uh, would be the seventh largest country in the world if they were a country. They need not just love and food. They need that, and you should consider how to serve them. But they need the good news uh, more than anything to know they, ha- they can be adopted by the Father. So, um, all right, back to you guys. Let me... Let me throw one thing in there. Even if Francis did say that, the irony is is that he did use words frequently. Uh, He actually approached the Pope and confronted the Pope. He went to the Muslims that he had once been sent to fight against, and he communicated to them. And so, yes, he did have a ministry of deeds, but it was grounded with a ministry of words. Excellent. This gets to the next question for you, Bruce. Is there a difference between mission and missions? What, okay. what is our right. mission? And, okay. and is there a distinction there? Maybe this okay. has to do with your view of lordship. Okay. Great. Okay. So, so um, I think probably a helpful way to approach this is to ask three questions. Um, the first is, what is God's mission? Um, the second would be, what is the Christian mission? And then third, what is missions? This thing that we are focusing on in this conference. God's mission, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I would say is to glorify himself by redeeming his imagers and restoring his good creation. So let me parse that for just a moment. 
Everything God does, he does to glorify himself, to make his name known, to increase his renown. You see those phrases used over and over and again in scripture. Two primary ways he does that is by redeeming his imagers and restoring his good creation. We've talked a lot about redeeming his imagers, that God sent his son and sacrificed his son to shed his blood for us so that we can be saved. And that is good news. The other good news is that he saved us for an eternity with him on a new heavens and earth. He is actually going to renew and restore the heavens and earth that he created in Genesis 1 and 2. We find that out in Revelation 21 and 22. And what we get from that is that God values the physical and material aspects of our life. He's going to, I mean, our eternity, we won't be souls floating around in some ethereal never-never land, you know, with angels with feathers and, and harps. We're, we're, there's actually going to be a new heavens and earth and a new Jerusalem. There's going to be music and architecture and art. Sports. Yeah, and sports. I mean, and really, there's, we have and no hair. reason to think that there won't be sports. And hair. Yeah. And uh, that's right. So, <laughs> and, so, Bruce, you mean you're not going to be wearing a diaper, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp in heaven? That's not heaven? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm against it, not for Good. it. Really? No, I won't yeah. do that. Yeah. So, so, the, so that's God's mission. So when we ask what is the Christian mission, it makes sense that our mission parallels God's mission in an appropriate manner. So I want to mention two things. We glorify God by participating in the redemption of his imagers. We speak the gospel. We speak it often. And we live a life that backs up what we speak by God's grace. It won't be perfect. We won't live a perfect life. But we pray that God will give us by his gospel and by his grace a life that is marked by proclaiming him with our lips and promoting him with our lives so that other Men and women can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I also want to say, though, how do we participate appropriately in God's restoration of his creation? Well, in one sense, we can't. I mean, it's God who's going to restore his creation. But there's an analogy here. Since God is going to renew and restore his creation, since he cares about physical and material things, he cares about our whole life. Christ is creator and he's king, okay, over everything. That means the Christian mission is as wide as creation, and it includes our work in our leisure. It includes our, uh, our work in the arts, in the sciences, in the public square, in sports, sports and competition. That's right. In business, in homemaking, all of these things. So what does that look like practically in 60 seconds or less? I think in any realm of life you find yourself in, okay? Work or leisure, art, sciences, public square, sports and competition, business, scholarship in the academy, homemaking. You ask three questions. The first question is, what is God's creational design for this area of human life? When God created the world as a place for universal flourishing and delight and happiness in Him, what would He have wanted this realm to look like? Number two, how has it been corrupted and misdirected by human sin and idolatry? The evil one wages his war on every front in all of these realms I've just talked about. And because of human sin and human idolatry, because of the evil one, every area of human life is warped, distorted, and degraded. And we want to identify the ways in which it is, which it's been directed away from Christ. And then the third question is, how can I bring healing to this realm by redirecting it towards Christ's glory? And what this does is it sets us free. That anything and everything we do in life matters to Christ Jesus. That we can take anything that the Lord has put our hands to and leverage it for His glory. Proclaim Him with our lips and promote Him with our lives. That brings us to missions with an S. What is missions? I mean, at the blazing center of the biblical testimony is God's concern for the nations. It's a major, major theme in the Bible. We read it out of the Bible... For whatever reason, but it's there throughout the scriptures that God slaughtered his son to redeem the nations. Worshippers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's not a tribal deity. He's the king of the nations. And we will not know him in his glory, full glory, until we see him riding in as the king of the nations. And we live with this almost unbearable tension that salvation comes through Christ alone. Number one. The number two, there's a couple billion people that have not been confronted with the gospel and the Christ who can save them. And that number three, God has given us the resources to do it. We've got to hold those three truths in tension and allow them to propel us to act. And so that, that would be a, a way of distinguishing between uh, mission and missions. That was quite good, my friend. Well said, yes. I, have you thought about that before? That was amazing. 
<laughs> Just off the cuff. So, really very edifying. All right, guys, in three, se- three minutes or less, I want to go through some questions here. Um, uh, Dr. Aiken, we talk a lot about the Great Commission. Um, Jesus said a lot of stuff. So why this particular paragraph? Why make such a big deal out of the Great Commission? Last words are meant to be lasting words. And he could have said a lot of things as he was preparing to ascend back into heaven. He gave us as his last parting words the Great Commission. I think that's enough. You guys want to add to that? I do. I would love to. First words are important words as well. And the very first words recorded in Scripture of God speaking to the man and the woman is Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so if you look at that, that's not so different from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, the point was God was speaking to worshipers there in the garden. Fill the earth with worshipers who live lives of obedience. When Christ said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. What he's doing is restating the first words. And so you see the Great Commission runs as a theme throughout the entire Scripture because Christ has created the world, the earth, the universe to be filled with worshipers. And even the last words of the Bible in Revelation 22, you have a repeated invitation to come and drink freely of the water of life. So from beginning to end, the nations are on the heart of God and therefore they should be on our heart as well. Yeah, you know, even uh, to pick up on both of their comments, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, you, you have the original Great Commission, a pre-fall Great Commission, where Christ would be fruitful and multiply, multiply worshipers, till the soil, <clears throat> which really means take my good creation and bring out its potential. In other words, do all the physical material things that you do for my glory. Well, after the fall, we now create idolaters instead of worshipers, and these idolaters till the soil in a way that doesn't glorify God. And so um, that's the original Great Commission. And then what Dr. Aiken says, we have a normative command from the king. And it's actually his parting words. Is that I want you to take this gospel and take it to the end of the earth. You know, wage this war in every battlefront. And let it expand outward. And uh, so you have an imperative from the king. You have a normative biblical pattern. And then I think we also have this tension that, that I talked about a moment ago. That if we think seriously about salvation coming through Christ alone, Acts 4.12, there's no other, no other name under heaven by which men are saved. And the reality is that there are two billion people that could leave their homes and walk for days and months and years and never encounter a Christian, a Bible, or a church. And the fact that here in the States, we have every resource, electronic resource, transportation resources, personnel resources, to take the gospel. Um, that puts us in a situation where we cannot not act. I mean, that's not good grammar, but that's good preaching. I think I heard that already. You've heard that somewhere. Yeah. Uh, George, I want to follow up on that. Three minutes or less. Two particular questions directed at you. Uh, We often hear uh, talk about is the gospel proposition or is it story? Proposition meaning the older patterns tended to be we preach uh, and share with our friends uh, God, man, sin, Christ, you know, response. Um, Now we're talking creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Um, What should we be doing? I think the answer is yes. It is proposition and it is, it is story. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that classic passage that most people quote when they say, what is the gospel? He says, here's the message I preach, which is of first importance, that Christ died, was buried, raised again. And that's normally the way people address it, but that's not exactly what it says there. It says that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again according to the Scriptures. What scriptures is he referring to? He's referring to the scriptures that he had taught the Corinthians, the Old Testament scriptures, that this is the fulfillment of God's plan, his global plan of redemption. It's, it's coming to fulfillment in the context of that story. And so when, it, when you ask the question, is it, is it proposition or story, it, it's both. When Jesus uh, encountered the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he told them the story. Uh, the proposition was that I died for you. Um, and in substitution, and the story caused their hearts to warm within them. They said that's what they said in response to it. We we understood what you had come for, but now that we see it in this context, our hearts burn within us, and that's what we're after. We're after burning hearts, our own and others. Yeah, you know, th- this is a, your question is a good one. I think there's a question underneath it too. 
So to echo what George said, I mean, we have these propositions and we can't lose them. I mean, there is a proposition. Christ is King. Christ is Savior. We've sinned. He'll save us. But uh, we have to be careful that those propositions don't get cut loose from the biblical narrative um, because their home is within the biblical narrative. Um, God is not a proposition. I, I don't believe on a proposition by itself, an abstract God. I believe on a storied God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who acted mightily in history. And those actions, that God, that particular storied God is a God I believe on. And really a warning for you for a moment with systematic theology, if I can. And this is the question I think that under, is underneath your question. Systematic theology, some of you have encountered it, some of you haven't. It's really just the task of asking questions of the Bible, taking topics and asking what does the whole Bible say about this topic? God, man, creation, Christ, salvation, end times, church, and so forth. And uh, one danger that I think we've got is that when we do this activity of systematic theology, and everybody does it, we either do it well or we do it badly, but we ask questions of the Bible, topical type questions. One of the dangers is that we come up with a beautiful system, this cathedral that we've made of theology, and that we hold that cathedral higher than the Bible. So Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or Miller Erickson's or whoever's, and we allow it to replace the Bible because we think, you know, here's the Bible. It's this sprawling, capacious, sloppy narrative that, that does it's not neatly packaged and like I wish it were. And Grudem, he's awesome. Well, you know, why couldn't Paul have done that? Why, you know, in Ephesians 1, why does Paul's sentence last 14 verses, you know? Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. And, you know, so we, we want to replace the Bible with systematic. But, you know, when we do that um, and we take these abstractions and propositions and, and, and sort of cut them loose and they float above the Scriptures, that's really dangerous. That uh, the home of any topical discussion or propositional discussion, its right home is the biblical narrative. Can I give a yeah. like just a 30-second 30 30. illustration? Um, i do it this way. Frodo is good. Sauron is bad. Mordor is dangerous. Elves are mysterious. Okay, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? If you've seen that movie, raise your hand. Okay, I just, I just told propositions from that story. They're important propositions, but apart from the story, they don't make sense. And so when you think about the gospel, yes, those propositions that Christ died, was buried, raised again, those are the gospel, but they don't make sense in this world that we're living in outside of the foundation of the story that they're giving in. That was a lot better than what I said. And he only took 30 seconds. Yeah. He only took 30 seconds. I was glad that. you did, my friend. That, we'll remember that one, won't we? Um, uh, George, um, what are the benefits of short-term mission trips, two minutes or less? Yeah. Why should a student here go on a short-term mission trip? I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, respond with a question. What are the dangers of not living on mission with God? That's a better question. Um, you know, when we, when we think about our lives, that we were made, that we were reconciled to God through Christ, and he's invited us to be a part of this mission, what are the dangers of living lives of, of apathy to that? Um, so now I'll get to the question. Um, you know, when it comes to benefits, we oftentimes think, what are the benefits to me? And that's a dangerous question, I think. Um, look at Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says, consider others above yourselves. And so I think missiologically speaking, when we think about missions, we don't need to think, first of all, what it's going to do for us. I want to think about missions in terms of, you know, what does missions mean to the lost? Well, if I'm proclaiming the gospel, that is their only hope. So that's a benefit. If I'm there and I'm in some foreign context and I'm working with nationals in that context, then because I've had training, because I've had some experience or whatnot, I can come alongside them and encourage them and equip them. Well, that's a benefit. Uh, you know, when it comes to going and partnering with our missionaries who are serving overseas, oftentimes they're serving in very, very, very difficult and isolated places and going and ministering to them and getting on the floor and playing with their children and praying over them and preaching the gospel to them, that's a benefit. When it comes to my local church, when I'm on mission, it, it centers them on praying for what God is doing in the world. That's a benefit. So, you know, how does it benefit me? Ultimately, you look at all of those things, and, and how can you not be blessed?
That's awesome. One of my favorite quotes on evangelism is from Steve Timmis. He says, evangelism involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Um, what could some of those things be, George? Some of those ordinary things that you could use with gospel intentionality to share the gospel with your neighbors. Yeah, I use the phrase mission, living with missional intentionality because the reality is, you know, as an evangelism professor, there's this expectation that, you know, you're out sharing the gospel, and that can really cheapen it. Um, the fact of the matter is I have sat next to people on an airplane and been able to share with them and actually seen people respond in repentance and faith. But it's the day-to-day -day living and seeing the lost. And, and, and praying, you know, my friend and colleague Alvin Reed says that every day that we should pray for opportunities um, to share the, the gospel with lost people. And then we should pray for wisdom to see those opportunities and then boldness to seize those opportunities. And so just practically speaking, when I go and get my hair cut, um, I go to the same person every single time. And over the course of, uh, you know, about two years, I've been sharing these propositions in the context of this story in order to point her towards the, the supremacy of Christ. When I go to, you know, to fill my tank up with gas, pay at the pump kills evangelism. You know, we live in a disconnected society where we're trying to, to uh, relieve ourselves of the need to interact with people. And we were made to live in community. And so when I go and buy gas, most of the time I want to intentionally go inside. And even if it's just saying, how can I pray for you today? I'm a Christ follower. How can I pray for you today? That's provided ample opportunities and, and sometimes even resulted in tear shed standing there at work as I, I pray over somebody. So That's excellent. CJ, you, you can't share the gospel at the barbershop. So tell us, um, there, there is something I don't know if everyone here knows about. You and your son, though, are using sports as a means of communicating gospel truth uh, on a podcast. Could you briefly explain that to us and tell us how we can start listening to that? I can. Uh, and kind of you to ask. Uh, my son a few months ago, my son Chad, 19, uh, approached me with a proposal, all his initiative, all his idea. He said, Dad, we love to talk about sports. I think a way we could serve parents and children and coaches and athletes is for us to do a podcast together, uh, basically just transferring the conversations we have on a daily basis in relation to sports and informing people of, of a biblical worldview in relation to sports. So a few months ago, uh, he created a site. We started a podcast. It's uh, available on iTunes. Chad and Dad talk about sports. And tell us what you do on that program. We talk about sports. And, and <laughs> here's, here's, here's what. Weren't you listening? There's something gospel related I was driving was it, at. It, it got dirt in your ears. Okay. I mean, is it just Sports Center with, with a better broadcaster or? Well, now this is awkward, Tony. This is awkward. Um, what, what, uh, what, what Chad was hoping to seize were, was the unique insights of his dad, which would certainly be distinctive from the talking heads at ESPN, and to uh, inform uh, any discussion of sports with a biblical worldview. Yeah, so that's the and it does have an evangelistic effect because uh, there are so many who are not Christians who have a definite interest in sports and a passion for sports. They are quite happy to talk about sports, particularly with someone who knows something about sports. And so it does, uh, at, uh, when appropriately done, become an ideal opportunity to transfer a biblical worldview and share the gospel. I'm, I'm curious, know, knowing that you are a, a Redskin fan. Indeed. Is, is your conversation grace-filled and, and, and humble, and does it give due concern and respect to, to other teams like the Cowboys and Dallas? And I mean, I just need to know, is it, you know, something that's so biased and blindsided and narrow and myopic that the rest of us would be totally unedified? 
Well, you, we you, will have, you will have to listen in order to make that determination for yourself. But Chad and I are both Redskin fans, so yes, we will unapologetically share our perspective, which will be critical of the Redskins when and where appropriate. And there's plenty of appropriateness in relation to criticizing the Redskins. But we hate Dallas with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, we do take particular joy. And if you overhear the podcast, you will note that sound of joy. Uh, when we talk about the Cowboys, we hate the Dallas Cowboys. We hate Duke basketball. There's a number. We hate the New York Yankees. Oh yeah. yeah. Part part of being a good fan, and part of the purpose of the broadcast is to help people understand what's involved in fandom. There are rules to fandom. Seconds. Part of being a good fan is not only to have an allegiance, an appropriate allegiance, not a bandwagon allegiance, an appropriate allegiance with a history to a team, but part of being a good fan is hating the rival team. That's part of being a good fan. Now, please don't misunderstand. Moms, small children listening in, please don't misunderstand. This is a, this is a biblical hatred. I, 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 can, I can justify this theologically. It's not directed toward people. It's directed toward institutions. It's directed toward uniforms. It's directed toward annoying fans with an attitude of superiority, as we just observed here. I actually, it, I was wondering if, if uh, there were a thousand people in a room who wanted to follow uh, Mahaney Sports on Twitter. What, I mean, is it Mahaney Sports? Yeah, what's, or, the, tw what's oh the tweet? Boy. You don't know, do you? Uh, I am ignorant of all things related to technology. Isn't this pathetic? Yes. Yes, it is. I have no idea. Okay. I think if I remember correctly, it's Mahaney Sports. Okay. I'm sure yeah. we can find it. We can find it. We got, I we got think four it's Mahaney minutes. Sports. And by the way... That I have three questions. I, can I just say one other thing? It, it is a, a loud statement about uh, really the humility of Dr. Aiken that I could joke with him in that way and do so without reluctance. And I would want you to know, I'm sitting here listening to these men. These men are money on these questions. Here's what I'm thinking. Why wouldn't you want to go to school here? You are, if you're not going to school here, you are an idiot. <laughs> and he says that with uh, theological and, and all humility. <laughs> CJ, we're talking to a lot of college students here. Can they do mission apart from the church? Would you recommend church involvement with mission? How important is that? Wow, well, I would want to hear from these men. They have so much more experience. Can they do it? Yes. Should they do it? No. Next question. Um, <laughs> we got three minutes. I, I would agree with that. Bruce, how do you cultivate a love for missions? Mm. Um, uh, so to be quick, I'd say first we have to cultivate a love for Christ. That's utterly central. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. You cannot proclaim what you do not find precious. And so you get alone in a room in the mornings, and I think there's a, you find a helpful pattern. My pattern is to take a, a chunk of Scripture and memorize it and then to pray through it. And then uh, I know this might seem silly, but I imagine uh, Jesus Christ seated across from me in the room commanding me from that text and uh, telling me how to live my life. And then I imagine my day in the light of that text. And so this is a way, listening to his words patiently and attentively like a lover, rather than quickly and dismissively like a fast food customer, that's how we cultivate love for Christ. So that's first. And then second, I would say, immerse yourself in biography, missionary biography. Here's one. In the shadow of the Almighty, the, the, uh, the life story of Jim Elliot, the martyr, the missionary martyr. Um, the Life of Adoniram Judson, William Carey, Immerse Yourself in Biography. Read a book like this. Can I take a minute? Uh, your face says no, but your lips said yes. Um, okay, half a minute. Um, this book devastated me. It took me apart at the seams. When I read it, I was 23 years old. Um, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Um, John Piper's life and ministry, God really used it to take me apart. <clears throat> Just the, the, the blood earnestness with which he treated the big things in Scripture. And in this book, he treats missions. And uh, I would actually challenge you right now to buy this book and read it. I mean, this is a, a, an explosively powerful little book. I mean, it's an ugly cover. 
Um, but they, they've got a new edition with a better cover. The graphic designer clearly cut his teeth in the early 80s um, for this one. But uh, there's a new edition. And then uh, the last book, especially for college students, Piper wrote it also. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. Um, if you buy one book, it's probably this one. It's a little book. And uh, I think we like little books more than we like big books. It's a, it's a powerful challenge for you not to waste your life, huh? Um, to take your little dreams and let God give you one grand, overarching, breathtaking, big dream instead of those little dreams. Well said, my friend. Well said, indeed. Um, by the way, Nathan Finn is doing a breakout on Adonai Judson, and uh, I may actually go there myself. I'm looking forward to, to that. Um, <clears throat> last question. You talked about books. Guys, in just two minutes, gospel and mission. Students may want to write these down. Recommend just your top maybe three or four books on these topics. Maybe they're all three on gospel, that's fine. Maybe three on mission, but on our theme, what would you commend? Bruce has already got us started. So anybody, take a shot at it, and we'll finish here. We like little books, but sometimes we need to uh, really wrestle through big books. And so one of the most um, critical books I feel like that's come out in missiology in the last ten years is Christopher Wright's The Mission of God. Um, it is, it's not easy reading. It's a tome. It's, it's massive. Uh, but um, when you say things in a long and detailed way and you get to the end of it and you have a greater understanding, appreciation, and you're cherishing more, um, then it's worthwhile. And, and I think Chris writes The Mission of God is one of those books. It's worth your time. Uh, the Letters and Diaries of David Brainerd who in many ways is responsible for the modern missionary movement, died at the age of 29. Um, Gospel, John R. W. Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, is probably the best book written on the atonement in the last 50 to 75 years. It's biblical, theological, devotional, and uh, you'll worship your way uh, through that particular book. Um, uh, Mountain Rain, I'll, I'll make a quick reference in my message this morning to a man named James Frazier who worked among a people group and died among that people group. And uh, the book was written by his uh, daughter, uh, Ellen Crossan, and it is called Mountain Rain and what God did in the Himalaya Mountains through the life uh, of one man. And, uh, again, you'll worship your way through the book and uh, rejoice in how God has raised up such choice servants to do such incredible things. fully agree with The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Uh, the application of the gospel, I'd recommend uh, The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And for all pastors, I'd recommend The Cross and Christian Ministry by Don Carson. That has defined pastoral ministry for me. And two more. I mentioned three on mission. Let me mention two on uh, gospel. So CJ's book, Cross-Centered Life, uh, it's a small book. Once again, powerful little book. You can buy it. You could actually read it in one day if you wanted to. I don't recommend that. I recommend reading it a little more slowly and letting it... Yourself absorb it. Then the second one is J.D. Greer's book, Gospel. It's an aptly entitled book, powerful. Excellent. Would you help me thank our panelists for uh, joining us today and answering these questions? Amen.